I'm Jeff Cohen. Counselor, therapist, and inspirational speaker Panina Taylor joined me last week. She talked about her troubled childhood, finding temporary comfort in Christianity and so-called Messianic Judaism, her marriage to a non-Jew, and the resulting doubt and family tension. But at one point she began to receive little hints about who she really was and what she needed to do next. Welcome back, Panina. Oh, thank you for having me. So we left off last week after several twists and turns with you and your husband Paul living a double life as Messianic Jews in the Baltimore area. You're beginning to deal with cognitive dissonance about your faith, but I understand there's an interesting story about a potential new house in Baltimore that changes your story at another time, as if we haven't had enough twists and turns. Right, right, yeah. It's, you You know, they, they say that truth is stranger than fiction. You couldn't write a, a, a book or a, or a movie that would be any more unbelievable than what actually really happened. So um, we did the Messianic congregation for about three years along with my parents, and then it was just very tense, as you can imagine. Sometimes, sometimes working with your parents is is a piece of cake. For us, it was a little bit stressful, and we decided that we valued our relationship with my parents more than the leadership position that we had. So we left the congregation. We started going to a Messianic congregation in Northern Virginia. Northern Virginia is just south of of Maryland, which is where we were living. Uh, but we went to Baltimore, which is in Northern Maryland, for an event. And after the event, there was food. And there was this really, really nice lady who was trying to convince me, because she could tell by the way that I looked that it might be something I'd be concerned about. She was trying to convince me that the food that they served was kosher. And, you know, in the end, it turns out, I mean, that Messianic congregation really did work very, very hard to do things as correctly as they knew how. So the food probably was actually kosher. but. She's trying to explain this to me, and in mid-sentence, she stops, and she says, how would you like to buy a nice big five-bedroom house in Upper Park Heights in Baltimore? (laughs) That's out of nowhere. Now, well, yeah, right? Uh, You know, first of all, you have to understand that Upper Park Heights is the heart, or at least was at the time, the heart of the Orthodox Jewish community. It's like saying, you know, do you want to buy a house in Muncie, right? So, or Lakewood. (laughs) So, um, while I'm staying there, and I'm looking at her, and she's like, you know... I believe that God wants you to buy this house. That probably resonated with you because you, in other parts of your story, when you've felt like you have this message directly from God, you think, well, there's something here. So I'll, I'll bet at that point right. you tuned in to maybe she's onto something. Yeah, I did. Although I did think she was a little nutty, you know, like, where is this coming from? But I wasn't sure what to do with it. I'm not very good at confrontation. So I figured, well, I'll tell her I need to ask my husband. He's going to say no way because of the geographics, I think that's the right word, of of the whole thing where we lived versus where he worked versus where Baltimore is. I just knew that that was not going to happen. So I said, I I need to tell my husband. So I go and I talk to my husband. I was sure he was just going to say, no, you're crazy. Forget it. Just tell him no. So I go and I tell him. And he says to me, well... We could go take a look at it. <laughs> Famous last words. I like to say that, yeah, exactly. Well, and I like to say that I that was the first and last time I was ever speechless. <laughs> um, I was like, okay, then. And so I went back to her and I told her that, you know, we could take a look at it. And long story short, because the, lo- the story is getting a little long, but we fell in love with the house. And then we went to our Messianic congregation and we asked them to pray 
concerning whether or not it was God's will for us to buy this house. They even held a special prayer meeting for the purpose. And, you know, the surprising part about it all is that the entire congregation of 250 adults unanimously agreed that it was God's will for us to buy this house. Why? Because who better to convert Orthodox Jews to Messianic Judaism than Messianic Jews who look and act like Orthodox Jews, right? And so with the blessing of our congregation, we made arrangements to buy the house and we moved in. So where at this point, when you're moving in, you have to think about where are you going to pray? So how did you figure out where you were going to go and what day of the week were you going to go? Right. Well, so here's the thing. I mean, there was no question that we were we would worship on Saturday. That was the way we had been functioning for many years now, and that was our beliefs. And in fact, we did uh, a stint two years actually in the Seventh Day Adventist Church, which was when we were convinced. I mean, totally convinced that you know of the abomination of what Christianity did to change the Sabbath to Sunday. Um, and in fact, there's even a, a book published by Seventh-day Adventists called Sabbath to Sunday. But uh, anyway, so so we moved in and the Messianic congregation in Baltimore was not in walking distance from our house. So we were like, okay, well, where are we going to worship on Saturday? And so we decided that what we would do is we would go to one of the many, many Orthodox synagogues in the neighborhood on Saturday, because the thing is, is that if we got in the car and we drove to the Messianic congregation on Saturday, the minute we got in the car and we drove, our neighbors would just write us off as Goyim and, and we would never have any influence. I mean, part of our point, and yeah, it's kind of funny because, you know, recently there's been a whole spate of deceptive Messianics who have moved into Jewish communities pretending to be something that they're not, right? Uh, and we were, that's who we were, no question. Uh, the only difference is, is that I was actually born a Jew. So that does change things a little bit. But part of our message, part of our underlying motivation, if you will, was that you can be a believer in Christianity or Messianic Judaism and still be a good Jew. And so we knew that if we got in our car and we drove on Shabbat, nobody would listen to anything that we ever had to say we would knock ourselves out of that ballpark as far as being good Jews. And so we decided that we would go to an Orthodox synagogue on Saturday on Shabbat. And we would go to, in, in Christianity, they have midweek meetings where it's almost like a mini Sunday worship, Saturday worship service. So we would go to the Wednesday night meetings. And on Shabbat, we would go to an Orthodox synagogue. So I did a search on Orthodox synagogues in Baltimore. And one of the ones that came up was, I recognized the name of the rabbi. It was the same name of the rabbi who ran the bookstore that I had been going to to buy books. That's how we decided to go to that synagogue. And as it happened to be, it was about a quarter of a mile walk from our house, which was still close, but just far enough that the people on that side of the community didn't know anything about us. So that was also good because there's another little story see that lady that had sold us the house. She wasn't Jewish. And um, when she had first bought the house several years before, she had taken it upon herself to go knocking door to door to all of her Jewish neighbors to inform them, just in case they didn't know, that they were hopelessly lost and going to burn in hell forever because they didn't believe in the Savior. That is not a good way to make new friends when you move into a neighborhood. <laughs> no. 
And so you can imagine how happy people were in the community when they found out that she had sold the house until she told them that a nice messianic family uh, was moving in. Your cover is blown before you start. Yeah, but I didn't know about this till years later when somebody told me. I just couldn't figure out why the people in this community were so off standish and, you know, like not very warm. But I figured maybe it was just part of the the way the neighborhood was. You know, I, I didn't realize that it was because they had been warned already that we were missionaries. But the people of the shul didn't know that. So we show up on Shabbat morning and um, on the women's side, I mean, everybody was just so delightful. They could tell that I had no clue what I was doing. They took out the sitter and showed me where we were in the davening. They took out the, the chumash, the, you know, and showed me where we were in the, in the reading. And, uh, and on the other side of the mechitza, on the men's side, I always like to ask this question, what happens when there's a new guy in town? Oh, you're going right? to get an aliyah if, if they've never seen you before, for of sure. Of course, of course, especially in a small, warm community. And so they offered my husband an aliyah after all. He was wearing a kippah and a talit, and he had three little boys who were all wearing kippahs and tzitzit, and he appeared to be praying from a sitter. So, yeah, they offered him an aliyah. But, and this is a really big, important but, because it's part of who we are, and it's part a big part of our story, is my husband is a man of tremendous integrity. And unlike other non-Jewish messianics who actually lie about what they are, uh, and take on fake Hebrew names and deceive when they're in these situations. My husband is not like that. And so when he was offered an aliyah, he told them, I'm not Jewish. He like sensed that this was not okay. Mm -hmm. And I think that is really huge. Right, how they like, Because some non-Jews don't even realize that. So being a congregation that often welcomed visitors and converts and stuff like that. I mean, I, I wasn't there, so I don't know for sure. But, you know, my understanding is that they were like, oh, okay. So that went really well. And um, we went a few weeks in a row. And then my husband came to me, this man of tremendous integrity. And he says to me, you know, we need to tell the rabbi that we believe in, you know, him. I'm avoiding saying the name for the sake of the audience, so uh, I'm trying to do it, but it's not very easy because in my own speaking, I normally just say Jesus. But anyway, my husband says to me, we really need to tell the rabbi what we believe because we don't want him to feel like we've been lying to him when it comes out and it's going to come out. We don't want him to feel betrayed. So I was like, I don't think this is a good idea. I do not see this ending well. But he was insistent. And so we invited the rabbi to come over. And, you know, knowing that my husband wasn't Jewish and that I was the rabbi, he thought that we were inviting him to, I don't know, to talk about conversion or, or something, right? So he comes in and my husband starts telling him what we believe. And the rabbi stops him after a minute and he says to him, well, you don't believe that anymore, do you? At which point my husband says, yeah. And in that moment that it took for shock to register on the rabbi's face, I began to see my world implode. I was afraid that, that they were going to take our pictures, you know, and post them on posters on the lamppost, you know, warning missionaries or something like that. I mean, maybe, maybe my kids would get beaten up. I, I just, you know, 
you know how your mind goes on overdrive when you're in a situation like that. And I began to cry. So the rabbi turns to me and he says, well, what do you believe? And, uh, at that point, at this point in my story, I had been a Christian for 17 years. I had been responsible for bringing hundreds, if not thousands of people to Christianity. It wasn't like I didn't know what I believed, but in that moment of emotionality, you know, I just started crying, Rabbi, I don't know what I believe. And I begged him, please don't kick us out of the shul. And the rabbi took a very, very long time to respond. He was thinking. And I, I was starting to be convinced that he would never say anything to us again. <laughs> but when he did speak, he said what I consider the most important thing that any, anybody has said to me along my Jewish journey. And that was, he said to me, you are a Jew, no matter what you believe. He said, let me be clear, though. What you believe is not Judaism. It's not kosher. It's not okay. But as a Jewish woman, you have a responsibility before God to fulfill the commandments that God has given the Jewish people. So I'm going to let you and the children continue to come to the shul. He did ask that my husband not come, mostly because he had no idea what to do with him. <laughs> you know, He said, but there's one caveat. He said, I want you to talk to a guy from an organization called Jews for Judaism. Now, I had never heard of Jews for Judaism before, but I'm not stupid. Jews for Judaism, Jews for Jesus, they probably don't like people like me very much. But what was I supposed to do? If I didn't agree, he wouldn't let us keep coming to the show. It was a condition. So I agreed with the, yeah, yeah. But I figured I would just put it off and put it off and put it off and, and we just keep things status quo, you know? But long story short, he didn't let it go very long and he made it pretty clear that this was very important. And so I finally called the guy and made an appointment with this guy from Jews for Judaism. He, it was, it was really interesting. He walks into our house and he says, let's talk about why you think Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And I'm like, um, okay. <laughs> like, you start every conversation this <laughs> That's way? That's a tough opening question. And it was a tough question. So my husband was very happy to do the talking. And at that moment, I was very happy to let him. So my husband answers him, you know, get, throws him out an answer. It's not really important what it is. But the guy says, well, let's take a look at that. And he turns to me and he says, now, Panina, you've read this passage in its context before, right? And I, I said, of course. And he said, but you see... Jesus on every page, right? And I said, well, of course, who else could it be talking about? And he said, well, I want you to do me a favor, okay? I want you to read this passage with me and try to do it from the perspective of the people who lived at the time that the prophet was writing, which was, this is a passage from Isaiah, Yeshayahu, which was 700 years before the destruction of the temple, 700 years before he ever walked this earth. He said, would you do that for me? And I said, okay, sure. And for the first time in 17 years, I looked at the passage without the bias that it had to be a messianic prophecy about you know who, and just read it for what it said. And I discovered that the passage isn't even a messianic passage at all. And the verse that Christians use to say what they say is actually mistranslated. 
Then we touched on one other corollary issue, and then he left. He wasn't actually with us very long, maybe an hour, but he left me with all of these, so much to chew on, because if this one core concept that I had held for 17 years was based on a lie, what else did I believe that was based on a lie? And so I started going back to his office like every other day, asking him questions and and then not taking his word for it alone, you know, going back to the forums. I went to the, I got myself kicked out of the Jews for Jesus forum, chat forum, because they thought I was a plant. <laughs> they thought I was a, they thought I was an anti-missionary who was trying to set a trap for them. I got, I went onto the forum and I said, please convince me, give me a reason to keep believing. Sounds like a cry for help, right? Well, the way that they treated me was so not nice. I mean, you know, uh, people who think that social media today is bad, it started out bad. Like, you know, people just have no filters when it comes to how they treat each other on the internet. So I was so upset by the whole thing that I shut down, walked away from the computer crying. And I was like, if this is the way that Christians treat people who are really seeking, there's a problem here. But I did go to others who answered my questions and the the problem is that none of the answers were actually answers you know they were basically like well we know what this looks like but we also know in our heart that he's the messiah you know like they didn't have any real answers and so the foundation the bricks of the foundation of my faith were being pulled out and at at one point there was really not much left of a foundation and so the whole structure just came tumbling down. And at that point, I had to decide, you know, okay, if all of this that I've believed basically my entire adult life isn't true, do I still believe that there's a God? And if there is, what does that mean about the Old Testament, the Tanakh? You know, is it God's word for the Jewish people? or, or and, and what does that mean, even if I decide that it is God's word to the Jewish people, what does that mean for me as a Jewish woman? I mean, do I have to be orthodox? So that was a really daunting task. I had to struggle through all of those answers. So I'm curious, as you're trying to reconcile all these different thoughts and all this history you have with religion, what's the point where you get to a path that makes sense for you? And second part of the question, how is your husband, your kids, your parents reacting to some of these newfound insights you're having? So as I was realizing that all of what I had believed was not true, I was also getting more and more involved in the Jewish community and learning as much as I can and going to classes and asking questions. Fortunately, Baltimore is a community that has a lot of learning for beginners going on. And so there were a lot of places for me to plug in. Um, Mark Powers, which is the name of the guy who was the head of Jews for Judaism at that time, he spent hours upon hours upon hours with me answering my questions. And he always said, if it's there, I can't make it go away. And if it's not there, I can't make it appear. And he would always just like, let's look at the passage. Let's look at what, you know, and it all just came together. It all made sense. And that spark, the Jewish spark that was there, you know, felt comfortable and at home with the things that I was learning and with the idea that this was the way I was supposed to be. Um, there was another question. How your husband, your kids, your parents, as oh. you're getting clarity, now you have all right. the people around you who may not be in the same space as you. 
Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. My husband and I, we had had this amazing relationship up until the point that I had rejected Christianity. He felt like his right arm had been cut off. Everything that he said offended me. Everything that I said offended him. We were fighting all the time and we had never fought before. So everybody was convinced we were going to end up divorced. I have a funny story. Uh, It was not very long after I came back to Judaism because that was like in September. So in November, Thanksgiving, I had not yet told my family. And we had a family Thanksgiving meal and we're all standing around the kitchen and my sister and my mom and I are standing around doing stuff with the turkey or whatever it was we were doing. And my sister asked me a question and I answered it and she says, you know, it doesn't sound like you're searching anymore. She says, it sounds like you've made up your mind. And at that point, I felt like the jig is up. I've been caught, (laughs) you know, my hands in the cookie jar, whatever metaphor you want to use. And so I just was like, yeah, I, I guess I have. And I don't need to give you all of the details, but my sister freaked out and started yelling at me and I ended up leaving the room and my mother came and chased me into the bathroom and it was like a whole scene. And it was like such a big deal and it was not what I wanted my Thanksgiving to be like. So meanwhile, I'm I'm talking with my husband, we're fighting all the time, all the time, all the time. And even very soon after that, so I began to share with my dad and my husband uh, about the things that I was discovering and my children, as a matter of fact, there's a whole nother side story about how that affected my son and his becoming bar mitzvah. Because when I came back to Judaism, my kids were six, eight, 10 and 12. So my oldest son was less than a year from bar mitzvah. And that, you know, presented a whole nother set of questions. Like, are they going to let him be bar mitzvah in the shul if he still believes you know, in in Messianic, whatever. And uh, so anyway, so I was sharing with my husband, sharing with my father, and my father's goal was everything I would bring up, he would prove that the Jewish view was wrong. But every time we talked about a particular topic, he would come back to me and he would say, actually, you know, I think they're right. So when my son became bar mitzvah, which was like, Oh, eight months later, we had a backyard barbecue. We did that so that the people that we had become friends with would feel like it was okay that they could come. And we made sure that upstanding people in the community lit the fires for the barbecue and everything. Like we really went out of our way to make sure that everybody could eat by us for that. I had already been there for almost a year, you know, so I did have friends in the community. I also didn't, I had, there were a lot of people who, I have all kinds of horror stories about the way people treated me, but there was definitely a group of people who believed what I said, trusted me and became my friends. And uh, so we had people there for his bar mitzvah. And we also had Mark had come, the the counter missionary came to the bar mitzvah. And and, uh, like I said, I had been having this conversation with my dad for almost a year about his beliefs. And so at the bar mitzvah, I looked out the back window and I saw that Mark and my dad were talking. And a few hours later, I went and looked again and Mark and my dad were still talking. <laughs> it turns out that my dad was just like picking his brain over all the questions I had raised, but not necessarily answered to his satisfaction. Long story short, by the end of the bar mitzvah party, my mom and my dad decided to come back to Judaism. 
So uh, I brought them back to Judaism with the help of Mark. And, uh, but my husband and I were still fighting. And um, about two years after I came back, so about a year after the bar mitzvah, we were having a conversation. We had an argument. It was a real doozy. And I remember being exasperated and saying to him, well, you just say that because you're a Christian. To which my husband says, well, actually, no, I'm not. And I'm like, what? And he says, well, no, over the past two years, you've given me enough reason not to believe in the New Testament's validity anymore. I don't believe in Jesus anymore. He says, but I'm not convinced that Judaism is the truth with a capital T. There goes that truth Mm -hmm. again, right? And I certainly don't want to trade one flawed religion for another. So at that point, he was what we would call a Noahide, a Ben Noah. He was, you know, he believed in God and the validity of the Tanakh. He wasn't sure about anything else, but that change changed his status in the community. And he and I started going to classes together. And long story short, two and a half years later, he decided that Judaism was the truth with a capital T. And he and I were married, he converted, and we were married under the chuppah in Baltimore with all of our closest friends there with us. Wow. So as tense as it was, you end up getting the happy ending where everybody comes around to the the same viewpoint. So I'm just so curious now, as you think about where you are in present day, how do you reflect back on that whole time period of the religions you were exploring, the people you were talking to and getting them interested in other religions? Do you look back on it as just part of your journey? Do you have any regrets about how you were spending those number of years? It's funny. Um, I do look back as part of my journey regarding people that I may have convinced to change beliefs. um, It's it's funny. I was interviewed in the Huffington Post many years ago now, shortly after my book came out. And um, one of the questions was, do I have any regrets? And I said, yeah. I didn't really bring very many Jewish people to Christianity, but my biggest regret is that I didn't have the opportunity to bring very many of them back either. I was accused of being a racist because I didn't regret bringing non-Jews to Christianity. I only regretted bringing Jews to Christianity. But at the same time, I have had a part in bringing back probably about 20, 25 people. So that feels, you know, like I feel like if I brought back one, that makes it worth it, you know, and, and I feel like I've done my tikkun, if you will, for that. But um, that that was probably my biggest regret. So then what are you focused on these days? Now it's all come full circle. You're an observant Jew living a Torah lifestyle. What, what are your focus areas today? What are your goals for your family now over the next five to 10 years? Until COVID hit, I was speaking at shuls and schools and communities, you know, would bring me out to share my story. But also, uh, as you talked about at the very beginning, um, I'm a life coach. So a lot of times I'm also brought in as a scholar in residence for the weekend. And then usually it goes one of two ways. Either they ask me for more counter missionary stuff to go along with my story, or they ask me for more inspirational, motivational type stuff to go with my story. Um, so that's primarily what I was doing. I've written two books. One is my story called coming full circle. Um, and the other one is, um, actually a written version of a polemics course, a counter missionary course that I created. It's called scripture twisting. And it's basically the Jewish answers to the biggest 
claims of Christianity. So I wrote it as a resource because um, not everybody can, you know, now we have stuff on Zoom and whatever, but it was just an easier way to get that information into the hands of people, especially Kirov rabbis and, and people who might be dealing with people like me, you know, who are trying to come back but need answers. So there's that. And I, I was teaching and I was speaking and doing some coaching. For a while, I was actually, I, I headed Jews for Judaism's Jerusalem office. I was doing counter-missionary work. But I realized that I really wanted to my, live my life in a positive way rather than in tearing something down. Tearing down the arguments that Christians make. And it's about, it's very much a debate style job, if you will. And I don't want to spend my life in that negativity. Now, some people thrive and that's fine. That's good for them and we need them, but that's not for me. And so I recently became inspired that uh, we have a lot of wonderful Jewish publications out there, both for the entire family and for women, right? There's, you know, Mishpacha, there's Bina, there's uh, me, I don't know, there's there's a gazillion of them. I'm sure that I will make somebody upset because I didn't name them, but they're fantastic women's magazines that nurture the spiritual Jewish woman and it, they're wonderful. But what has come to light in view of all of the recent movies that have come out against Orthodox Judaism is that some of us are very happy to live in, if you will, a spiritual bubble where we just block out the rest of the world and we're just, we're learning all day and our focus is completely on being good Jews without the world coming in at all. We don't, maybe they don't have any internet, they don't have any secular newspapers or whatever, and they're happy with that. But the problem is, is that there's a lot of Jewish women in the world today that are not feeling fulfilled in that. So if a Jewish woman an Orthodox Jewish woman wants a lifestyle magazine. She wants to learn about certain things that we don't talk about in the Jewish world, certainly not in a spiritual book, uh, magazine. Then she has to turn to things like Cosmopolitan and, you know, like stuff that we shouldn't even be feeding our minds with. So I decided to start a lifestyle magazine that celebrates and supports Orthodox Judaism or observance without preaching it because there's already enough of that out there and um, and will hopefully help the women who've watched my unorthodox life or or something stay within observance to, to say hey there there is some middle ground here and it's okay to want to think about how to decorate your home or uh, how to do your makeup or how to style your clothes in a modest context, but that makes you look attractive and not frumpy, you know, those types of things. So anyway, I put out a call. I just posted one post on social media, just one. And uh, I said, I've got this idea and I'd like to know who it resonates with and you're, if you're interested in joining my team and writing for my online magazine. My magazine is starting out online. I got over 200 comments. I got more than 80 people who filled out my questionnaire. That's the really big deal because that's an extra step. And I now have a team of 20 plus women and one brave man <laughs> who are working with me and we are almost done putting together our September issue of Unorthoboxed Magazine. I was waiting so for the name. that is my 
project. Yes, unorthodoxed. It just so happens that the name, you know, is sounds like it's a response, but that's okay. I don't care. The point is, is that Jewish women, whether they call themselves Orthodox or not, we are varied and we live, we're complex. We lead rich, nuanced lives. We are educated and worldly while also being connected spiritually to tradition. And, and this is going to celebrate and support all those different aspects of who observant Jewish women are. It sounds like you know exactly where you're going to be focused the next few years. So Panina, I want to just thank you so much, not, <laughs> yeah. not just for sharing your story, but doing it in such an authentic and open way. I appreciate it. And I appreciate the time you gave us today. Thank you. I'm sorry it took so long, but uh, it was my pleasure. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our executive producer is Rabbi David Pardo. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.